Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, a quick thank you to the Final Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. This week, it's all about the lager. Brick Lane Lager is a true premium lager featuring a unique cross-flow filtration that allows the quality ingredients to express themselves fully. Can you see where I'm going with this? It's just like the Final Word. Quality hosts, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, with their unique flow that allows them to fully express themselves twice a week. Anyway, make sure you join Adam and Jeff on the Final Word Patreon page. If you support the show, you could win a slab of Brick Lane goodness. Adam and Jeff will tell you more about it in the show. Head to Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Tell them the Final Word sent you. And remember, you can find everything Final Word related at FinalWordCricket.com. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is the final word, story time. The time for stories. The time when we say farewell to the world of today and say hello to the world of yesterday and the days prior to that. When we trek off into the past in search of tales about the game of cricket and about other things as well. I'm Jeff Lemon, and I'm about to be joined by Adam Collins, who is coming to the end of his isolation period. I've been uh, ringed in as someone who was a contact because I went to the football to watch Carlton and Geelong and then got the DHHS text message saying somebody else in that area has the bug as well. So we're going back into lockdown in Melbourne. Uh, it's all going on. There is a fair bit bigger than us happening in the world as well though Adam. Yeah we're, we're kind of both caught up in the slipstream at the moment aren't we uh, and I don't expect it'll be the last time we do this do based on what's likely to happen here in, in the coming weeks as the 
COVID situation gets yet more precarious. I think we had 41,000 new cases yesterday, 36,000 the day before, mm. and it's trending towards that, that 100,000 figure that we heard bandied around last week. And yeah, it's affecting cricket. Since we last recorded, Rishabh Pant has tested positive, according to reports today in India. Um, of course, he was in the community doing his thing. He was at the Euros. I mean, again, no judgment there. He had every right to do all of those things, but that will mean that... There is a, an effect on the Indian camp as we know it at the moment. The Royal London Cup could be in the gun, the 50-over competition, due mm. to the way it interacts with the 100 and the counties. Derbyshire have been pulled out of the T20 blast because they can't mm-hmm. put a team on the field for the last two games or a credible team on the field. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure that you know I've been pinged this week. Well, I've, I've been isolating this week. I was going to say, I'm sure I'll be isolating again. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm isolating mm. again between now and the 16th of August, even though I'm you know, testing every day and very much not carrying COVID. But that's the way it is. There's also a shitload of stuff going on cricket-wise. Australia won a game in the T20s. Ireland beat South Africa easily, comprehensively, um, yeah, smashed them. Yeah, like a completely, a completely clinical... I mean, we were. it's a shame in a way, Jeff, that we didn't record five hours later mm. the other day because it would have been lovely to have talked about that in depth. But we, perhaps we will on the weekly show I think so. next week. But, but yeah, they're, they're fifth on the World Cup Super League ladder at the moment, Ireland. So... Yeah, they're, they're going very well. Mm-hmm. The England uh, women's team managed to clinch their series against India. The, the second string replacement England men's team chased 350-odd <laughs> to beat Pakistan. I, saw the, I, I didn't watch much of the second innings. I, I saw the first and I thought, oh, well, you know, Pakistan have got their shit together and they're going to win you know, at least one game against this outfit. No, no, they're not. Um, they, they got chased down. <laughs> so, my Lord, um, yeah, it's, it's, as, as Bill Laurie said, it's all happening. Yeah, it is. In that final game as well, it was James Vince making his first international 100. So everybody was watching. Then Lewis Gregory making 80-odd, 80, 80 one of those players mm. who was brought in from the sort of third 11 to sweep the series and take all of the, the points on offer. So, yeah, a lot has happened in, the I suppose, the, the 43 hours since we hit our recorders <laughs> off to, to do the weekly show. Pakistan's ability to help players who really struggle to make hundreds make hundreds is remarkable like Shane Watson got his first hundred against Pakistan after that summer where he got out in the 90s about six times in a row and then I remember this clearly hit a catch straight to gully on 97 and got dropped and got through for runs whether it was that ball or a couple of balls later but got the hundred when he should have been out I, I, I think it's a step further than that I think he got dropped on 97 in the covers and then on 99 he was put down at point by Muhammad Amir mm. and he scampered through for a single and he nearly got run out running through <laughs> for that 100th run as you say, after a, a run where I think he made scores in the 90s four times in, in 10 test innings mm-hmm. or something like that. So, yeah, they, they've been friendly opponents. But, yeah, I think that the good thing about what we're about to do here is we can, for the next hour or so or whatever it works out to be, talk about nice things. We can go back into mm-hmm. the history of the game. But before doing that, we can talk about good people doing good things. And in turn, we get the chance to, for the final time perhaps for, for a mm-hmm. while, reflect on Declan Lawler, a bit of an appreciation for him and the amazing work, Jeff, that he's been doing for the Lord's Taverners, raising funds and the series of ultra marathons that he ran last week. I want to put this into kilometres because that, that hits a bit harder for me. Declan, on the first day, Declan and Seb, who was his running mate, did 98.9, 99.8, 99.8 kilometres. They ran 100 k's in a day. I mean, insane. And then the next day they did 66 Ks, I think. And then when it came to day three, they were buggered. Declan had that Achilles problem going in and they were both injured and were advised that they might risk permanent damage if they decided to try to run another, you know, 60-kilometre day or whatever it was going to turn out to be. So they 
pulled the pin after two days, but what they did on the first two days was remarkable. Um, and in doing so, they raised a couple of thousand quid and change for Lord's Taverners. So they've, um, they've done a remarkably good thing. And as Declan wrote on his donation page, he's completely overwhelmed by the messages of support and donations from people uh, that have came their way, not least through the final word. He's disappointed, but he's proud as well, and he should be proud uh, for all the money that they've raised for such an important cause with the Lord's Tabs. Of course, this is uh, funneled into areas of work the Lord's Tabs do and have been doing for seven decades around disadvantage and disability. So, And he goes on to say here that uh, that uh, you know the show has been the catalyst for him to raise his money for the Tabs, and, uh, and he hopes to do something again in the future. Mm-hmm. So a lot of courage to keep running when he was stuffed and I think also a lot of courage to pull the pin when he did in in some respects the easy thing to do there is to go I'll just keep doing it Mm -hmm. I can't let people down but it it takes bravery as well to say that this is going to cause long-term damage and he he needs to stop and and to know that people would still have a high regard for what he's achieved so well played Declan Lawler yes well played let's get into the numbers because this is how we do it it's all about the numbers we get into cricket history via the medium of a game that we like to call Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with uh, people on our Patreon page and they support the show. They help us make this show by sending us contributions, but they don't just send us a normal amount of currency. They send us a very specific amount because that amount relates to cricket in some way. And uh, that might be better explained when we do it. For instance, Shemendu <laughs> Shornikov has sent through a contribution of $6.16. So that means the number is 616 in some form, and we have to work out what that means. And he's given us a clue on the way through, and it reads as follows. An aggregate pertaining to a final word favourite for whom many, myself included, have experienced much schadenfreude over the years. On this occasion, however, the player well and truly lived up to the hype. Jeff. Yes. Now, this was one of these ones. Occasionally, we might have a, a nerd pledge number that comes in where we think... I've got a pretty good idea of what this is right off the bat. Like, I've just got a feeling. I've got a vibe because it, you know, it, it vibes with, with our areas, if I can use that, that cricketing term. There's something about it that speaks to something that we think about a lot. So $6.16 relates to 616, which is the number of runs made in the inaugural Indian Premier League tournament in 2008 when Sean Edward Marsh rolled up and was player of the tournament. 616 runs in 11 matches for the Kings 11 Punjab. He was the player of the tournament in that first IPL and did it elegantly, did it beautifully. I I remember it being all drives over cover. I'm pretty sure every run he scored was a drive over cover because... That's what he could do on his good days and in his good tournaments. And uh, you might remember a little bit of that, those early times with this sort of strange new league that was unfolding and the, the slightly peculiar fact that Sean Marsh was the biggest player in that competition. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Sean Marsh at that point of his career, remember he's three years away from making his test debut. He played a little bit of white mm-hmm. ball cricket for Australia around 2007, if I recall correctly. But, I mean, he's not really on the map for test selection. That's actually corresponding with the time in his first class career when it's not going particularly well. Yet he goes to India, bosses this new competition, becomes a, a superstar over there before really becoming a household name in Oz with the exception of being mm. his father's son, really. And the famous Marsh name, of course, that goes hand in hand with that. So, yeah, I think that 
in some respects, Jeff, when you look back at Sean Marsh's career, and let's you know, let's assume that it doesn't continue on the international stage. I mean, there's no reason why it would, despite how many runs he's made for WA and the Scorchers in the last as, few seasons. As has been pointed out before, and and as uh, well, as we've pointed out before, and, and as we've been reminded of recently, the Australian team shirts still have Mitchell above Marsh. <laughs> Mitchell Marsh has been playing the T20s. They've still got his first name there. Why would you need to differentiate? Okay, if, okay. Uh, yeah. I like that. Well, we can, we, can, we can hold out some hope. But, yeah, I think that when we go back and review it, he was an excellent white ball cricketer, Sean Marsh. He is an excellent white ball cricketer. He's been the domestic player of the year the last two times around. That run he went on when the team was stuffed in 2018, we often think of that period post-sandpaper as when Australia's senior batters, with the exception of the suspended trio, mm. didn't step up. They couldn't step up for whatever reason, mm. yet... On a white ball level, Sean Marsh certainly stepped up on the way through mm. to that World Cup. And, you know, unfortunately for him, he, he didn't quite have a purple patch continuing into the, the major tournament in 2019. But for the 12 months prior to that, he was Australia's best 50 over player. So, yeah, yeah. to his credit. Well, he basically he got squeezed out yeah. out of that lineup because there wasn't room with Smith in the middle order. So he didn't do anything wrong. Really, and then he got his arm broken in the nets ahead of that final group game and, yep. and couldn't continue. Yeah, so yeah, I think when we review Sean Marsh's career, and I'm sure we will in great depth when he you know, does retire from domestic cricket, we'll look back on a guy who was a far better white ball player than we perhaps thought on account of the fact that he did have his battles as a first-class player, which sometimes translated into what he was able to do at test level as well when he went in those yeah. massive slumps. But that, that doesn't relate to the way he played in 50 and 20 over cricket. Similar to Shane Watson, who we mentioned just earlier, in that, uh, well, the disparity's even bigger there. Shane Watson's one-day career was absolutely outstanding, but Sean Marsh, a very good one-day career, 700s, 1550s, averaged nearly 41 in ODI cricket, which is mm. extremely good, and it's perhaps strange that he didn't play more than 15 T20s for Australia, but he mainly played at a time when Australia didn't play T20s very often. They played one or two here or there, maybe five mm. or six in a year a lot of the time, and so... Your opportunities were, were pretty scarce. But that is the number for Shemendu Shornikov, 616. All right, thank you. That was a nice place to start the show with 616 and Sean Marsh. Uh, Jeff, what's next? We've got a double header. Our old friend Pushkar Godbole is back to uh, have a role at Nerd Pledge once again. And our old friend Danny McGee with a leg for an arm and an arm for a knee. He's uh, <laughs> uh, pledging in euros, Danny McGee. Very, very civilised, sophisticated type. So 240. Is the clue two dollars forty for Pushkar, two forty euros enchanté for Danny McGee. No clues for either, so you have a free swing, which means that Adam, it's time for you to express yourself. Oh, do I now? DC, play the music. Yes, for the first time in about a month, I reckon, Jeff, we have ourselves a dusty old bastard. When I saw 240 come up, I thought, oh, please, let it be. Please let it be. And it was a real dusty one. Uh, a man by the name of Jack O'Connor, um, who was the 240th Englishman uh, to play test cricket. And I must admit, Jeff, when going through this, I was a, a snifter worried. I'm like, gee, mm -hmm. Jack's career just isn't that interesting, Truthfully, I mean, I really tried. I mean, I really tried. And, you know, he played a test against South Africa in 1929, made a duck on test taboo. I mean, he'd been a bit of a mainstay for Essex by that point. He piled on the runs in, in 1923 with a run of 111 not out, 128, 93, 99. Um, he made over 2,300 runs in 1928, did the same in 1929, and gets his cap, gets his chance there at Lords. But, yeah, duck. 
in the first innings, bowled by a chap named Dennis Morkel. I looked it up, no relation to Mornay and Albie, but no, uh, it looks so like there it. are Morkels all over the joint in South Africa. I thought They're it was worth checking. Swimming thought, in Morkels. I thought, I thought a fast bowler yeah. called Morkel, it could be, uh, but it yeah. wasn't. But where this kind of gets interesting, well, I should say, by the way, he didn't make a duck in the second innings that he played. He made 11. He was out to Morkel the second time as well in what turned out mm. to be a fairly boring draw. But in the winter of 1930, they took him to the Caribbean on that MCC trip that we've referred to a number of times. So this was an interesting tour because it was... <laughs> the running... Wally Hammond trip? Or... No, this isn't. This is the, the trip after the Wally Hammond trip. This is the trip that ran alongside England going to New Zealand for the first time. So there were two England squads playing Oh, yeah, yeah. The dual and, threat. Yeah, and initially the West Indies matches weren't sort of considered to be test matches. They were representative matches for the MCC, but the games mm. played in New Zealand were given test status, if you like, and, and the others weren't by wisdom initially and how the MCC saw themselves. But nevertheless, because Jack was there, Jack played in three of those what would become test matches. He did okay. He sort of made a 37 at Bridgetown, made a half century in the final test match. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, hang on a second. He made a half century at Sabina Park. I know that test match. That's the last test mm. that, that Wilfred Rhodes plays in. And, of course, the, the test where Andy Sandham is the first to make a triple ton in test cricket, where he completed an innings of 325 when England go on to make, I think, 850-odd or something ridiculous, one of their, mm-hmm. their highest scores in, in test cricket. But I went through the scorecard, and I realised that this pairing, Jack O'Connor coming in at number six with Sandham batting at the time, the opening bat from Surrey, they took it from 667 to 720. And so long as Sandham made at least 26 of the 55 runs where they were together, I've calculated that Jack O'Connor was at the non-striker's mm. end when the first triple ton in test cricket was brought up. That's pretty cool, isn't Oh, it? yeah, <laughs> without knowing that it was test cricket at the time, yeah, thinking yeah. that it wasn't. <laughs> so, so for a guy who for a long time thought he was a one-test wonder, then later uh-huh. became a four-test player when they, you know, when they recalibrated wow. what fit. But he was the man who was out there. So, And look, that was the end for him as far as national honours were concerned. He went on to play for a long time, indeed, until just before the Second World War. He made over 28,000 first-class runs, 72 centuries at an average of 35. He was known as a great player of leg spin because he bowled leg spin as well, took 557 mm-hmm. wickets. But there's this like myth that he was the, the bloke who could master Titch Freeman. And someone mm-hmm. went back and did some myth-busting after he passed away. He did not master Titch Freeman at all. Titch got him out 15 times under 30 when playing <laughs> games against Kent. G- given how many games Titch played, that's given true. how many games Jack played, they probably faced <laughs> each other about 400 times. That's so. true, that's true. I suppose that's why. He must have had some success against him at different yeah. points, but yeah, a, a number of low scores too. On 16 occasions, Jack O'Connor hit 1,000 runs in a season. He made a century against every county and Oxford and Cambridge. Not many players uh, ran the table on, on that front. And a little side note before we go, there is another Jack O'Connor who played test cricket and played four test matches, mm. but for Australia. Um, he was a seamer uh, that turned out between 1907 and 1909 and was a pretty useful bowler taking 13 wickets at 26. But he wasn't out there for the first triple ton in test cricket. That was Jack O'Connor, cap 240. Very, very good. Are you sure it wasn't just another Jack O'Connor with a like, like it's just the same one with a moustache who was like, "Hello, I'm Jack O'Connor. I would like to play for Australia." Yeah, I mean, I guess the gap there. What's the gap there? So Jack O'Connor, the Australian, his last test was in 1909, and you got to press forward uh, 20 years. Might have been a bit young until Lords. So it doesn't quite work, unfortunately. But I like where you're going with it.
Yeah, okay, all right. My father has a range of fascinating historical stories about, like, jockeys pretending to be other jockeys and and whatnot. (laughs) There was a lot of shenanigans that went on in the racing industry. Not like now. Everything's fixed up now. Everything's very clean now. No problems. Uh, The other number, right, so that's – let's say say we're going to give Danny McGee the DOB. Yes. um, DOB. That's how I felt it. I I felt Danny McGee deserved the DOB. That's just how I – Thought about it when going through the planning yep. process. Whereas Pushkar, I feel like Pushkar is is up to something, right? There's something going on with Pushkar because Pushkar's had a couple of nerd pledges. The first of which was 241, which was a score that Sachin Tendulkar made. Yes. 241 not out. The second was 242, which related to Desert Storm, um, <laughs> the, the, the one-day game with Sachin. Now, this number is 240. So we've gone 241, 242 and 240. Uh, so I'm thinking it's probably going to be India-related. Like maybe it could be Jai Wardner making 240 in Karachi, uh, given that that would have annoyed Pakistan and there may be a sort of, you know, thumbing your nose at, at, at the neighbours. Um, less likely to be Zahir Abbas at the Oval. But where I think we've landed on this is that Pushka had some correspondence with us in the DMs about a previous number which involved the 96 World Cup, Ricky Ponting being caught, a spectacular catch against India, caught by Sanjay Mandraka off the bowling of one of Adam's favourites, Venkatapati Raju. <laughs> I was saying that the other week. I was in that game of cricket I played, uh, I don't know, a month ago now, whatever it was, with, with Felix White, who bowls left-arm orthodox. And after his first delivery, I described him as having flat like Venkatapati Raju, um, much <laughs> to the amusement of a few of the gathered fielders. <laughs> um, I, I can trust that only the sort of people who'd be playing with you would have who would the, understand. the reference to yes. be able to, 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 to think that that was funny. But it, it was about this Sanjay Mandraka catch. And so what does this link us to? It links us to the fact that his dad, Vijay Mandraka, made 240 not out in a classic Ranji Trophy match against Saurashtra in 1967. One of those real slow burn games where there are two big first innings and then both teams collapse in the second innings and it's it's about who can hold on and, and Maharashtra got home largely thanks to that 240 not out. It was the first unbeaten 240. There are quite a few 240s where players have got out, including final word favourites like Gilbert Jessup, Stan McCabe, Wally Hammond... Um, <laughs> <laughs> doing his best, uh, Brad Hodge, etc. But only four of them have ever been not out and the first of those was made by Vijay Mandraka in FC Cricket. So that's my guess for you, Pushkar Godbole. Very nicely done. Thank you, Pushkar, for being a, a wonderful pledger, correspondent, and part of what we do here on The Final Word. Next number, Jeff, 450, another double header uh, from Cam again and Brendan Crabb. Yes, Brendan has sent a clue, so I'll give this one to Adam. The number relates to a player of the match performance in an ODI that I attended. It did not involve Australia. During the game, one of the sides earned five penalty runs when a hat landed on the ball. The recently disgraced player of the match also top scored with the bat for his side. This was fun. Uh, this was fun. So, you know, initially I'm thinking, well, glory days of the World Series Cup with the neutrals playing each other, you know, mm-hmm. with Australia watching on. And I kind of realised quite quickly a neutral had never taken four for 50 in a one-day international in Australia. So I went beyond that. Mm-hmm. I thought Chris Cairns, there were those two classic one-dayers that New Zealand played against South Africa in the 97-98 uh, tri-series. But mm-hmm. none of that quite worked because Cairns never top scored uh, in any of those games. So 
I then went to Andrew Sampson and said, mate, uh, five run penalties, help me out here. Give me a steer because really there's nothing doing on the usual search engines that, that helps you along with this. And Andrew advised me that on 16 occasions, five penalty runs have been added in one day internationals. And the vast majority of those, he thinks, would have been for ball sitting helmets or caps. Then he sent me a list, which I thought we should go through very quickly first, Jeff, because you were at one of them. Indeed, you were commentating one of them. I wasn't there, but you were. You were at Belfast in 2015 when Australia played Ireland in a one-day international. You did that game for BBC Ireland. Jeff, can you remember the hat incident? Uh, Not strictly, no, because it rained a lot that day. I think it was 24 overs a side which means that the hat incident was probably worth quite a high percentage of the runs, uh, but it was one of those less good island performances where okay. they, um, you, you know, they, they weren't up to much in the... I think they were chasing, um, but the, the game the game kind of uh, fizzled out pretty early and it was mainly about the hospitality. Um, and what I can tell you is that my, my payment for that day, I was given a one-litre bottle of Bailey's Irish cream. <laughs> as, <laughs> and I was like, look, I don't want to indulge in stereotypes, but you're giving this to me. Like, <laughs> you, Irish radio station, are giving me a litre of Bailey's. Fantastic. <laughs> I remember you had to get there, if I recall correctly. I mean, I, for whatever reason, I didn't go and I had something else on. I was working on something else and you Mm -hmm. went over there and it was like, we'd been out quite late the night before. You had to make it, which wasn't unusual on the 2015 Ashes Tour. You had to make it over there and make it back in record time in order to make it to the next game. And I don't think you even spent a night there, did you? Or maybe you did. I spent one night there and then, yeah, I was was over in the morning at the game, slept, got up really early and came back on the first plane. It it wasn't fun. It was less than 24 hours in Belfast, but um, I'd like to go back with a bit more time. Yeah, I miss doing stuff like that. Anyway, the other time that jumped out at me on this this spreadsheet was that uh, a game between Kenya and Ireland, to Ireland again, in 2012, there were two instances of five runs being added as penalty runs. Wow. one day international I might go back and look at these cards um, after we finish recording because yep. they, they sound fascinating do you think, to me do the chances of that happening increase massively now with so many players wearing two hats now that we've got oh, the double yeah. hat thing That's a good the point. Owen Morgan double sometimes triple hats if yeah. all three hats fall on the ball does it cost you 15 well, if Steve Waugh wore the baggy green sandwich as he did uh, at yep. Gallipoli in 2001 with the slat chat mm-hmm. in between maybe that would have been possible <laughs> now what Brendan though was talking about as I by process of elimination. Commonwealth Games silver medalist Steve Waugh. <laughs> let's, let's, have, let's have a bit of due respect here. Uh, the, the, I worked out there's only been one neutral, so to speak, one-day international in Australia where five runs have been added. Mm-hmm. And what a one-day it was at Sydney in uh, January 2001 between the West Indies and Zimbabwe. A series I really loved and enjoyed watching throughout, so I, I do remember this game now. Zimbabwe were all out for 138, and it was a proper shambles. They were 88 for eight at one stage until until the captain, Heath Streak, who, as Brendan ah. I'm sure is referring to, is a, a player who's yep. been in trouble recently, made 45 from number eight. He was the last man out and the top scorer for Zimbabwe. So, and that 138, and that's the pledge number, right? The that, pledge is 450, so it's going to be 45. Yes, right. So, yeah, so yep. I, sh- I should have acknowledged that, that, that that's where the 4-5 is going to come into this. So the 138 included, as Brendan recalled, five penalty runs. And, and I couldn't mm. find it in any coverage. So I, actually, I remember this now. Yeah, so I went to the Wisdom Almanac, which helpfully I have. And it reads that, Wisdom says, helped by five penalty runs, the first awarded in a one-day international. Remarkably. And that's true. I went back mm-hmm. through here. It had never happened until this day. When Ridley Jacobs, attempting a world record equaling sixth catch, lost his hat and it fell on the ball. 
That's yes. how it happened. Ridley Jacobs. I remember exactly that. He was diving across and the hat fell off and landed on top of the ball. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then it was the um, the Zimbabwean left armer who took a shitload against oh, we're getting the there. West Indies. Oh, as we're well. getting there. Don't worry about that. We're, we're heading towards the, the Zimbabwean okay. medium pacer because in the reply at one stage, West Indies. Remember, they're only chasing one thirty nine. They are uh-huh. thirty one for eight. <laughs> With, with Heath Streak and Brian Strang. Brian Strang was a yeah. fascinating character to me. So 2001 is roughly the time when the speed radar's on the screen every ball. So before that, I reckon we only saw it when there was something significant. So, you know, a bouncer, like a Brettley Thunderbolt, or Steve mm-hmm. Waugh bowling a bouncer and bowling more quickly than Glenn McGrath. That would get you on the bottom of the screen on Channel 9. By 2000, 2001, it was just popping up in the graphic. And thus, we were able to see that Brian Strang bowled at 115 kilometres an hour to 120 kilometres an hour mm-hmm. and was legitimately playing test cricket, which kind of blew my mind. But he bowled these mm-hmm. beautiful little over-the-wicket induckers to right-handers and he worked over Lara. Lara here was out leg before wicket to Strang for naught from seven balls and yep. that was part of this crazy collapse until Nixon McLean comes in at number 10 and bashes an unbeaten 40 from 32 deliveries alongside Jimmy Adams, but it's nowhere near enough. West Indies all out for 91 in the 32nd over. Zimbabwe win by 47 runs and Heath Streak, how, how are mm-hmm. these for figures? So having top scored with 45... Eight overs, four maidens, four for eight, which is the best eight-over spell for Zimbabwe in one-day internationals. And sure enough, uh, he was named the man of the match. What a match to see for Brendan. Uh, He was one of 8,474 people in attendance at the SCG Hmm. that day. So Heath Streak's figures were 8484, and the attendance was 8474. Oh, I did not see that. But that's brilliant. Oh, man. Surely I, they could have I, found I, 10 more p- I, people. I only saw that because I that I was looking at the wisdom, which includes the attendance down the bottom, as, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, otherwise, that would have been lost. Apart. Imagine it was 8484. Oh. I, I remember it well. And I remember the one that, that came in and hit Lara on the pad and it ricocheted away to find leg and he took off for a leg bye. And he was about three quarters of the way down the pitch when he was given out. I remember that clearly because he, he thought, oh, I'm just trotting through for a leg bye, no worries. And then the umpire was like, no, keep running. Which I'd never seen happen before. So good one. All right, That's, so good. Um, Such that. a good one. Such a good one there from Brendan Crab that I have unilaterally decided again, Jeff. We should probably consult each other before doing this. That Brendan Crab is our Brick Lane Brewing Community Slab of the Week. That's not what we're calling it. We're not calling it the Slab of the Week. I've just stumbled <laughs> over my words there. But we are going to give you Brendan a slab, a case, a crate, twenty-four <laughs> beers from the Brick Lane <laughs> Brewing Community, which we are part of now. In the final word, Jeff. More to the point, Brendan, we're going to give you the opportunity to give someone a yes. case, uh, which could be you. You could give it to yourself. You could you could treat yourself, as they say, or it could be someone else. If you want to send them to someone else, you have that option. We will set that up for you. We will put you in touch with the Brick Lane folks. Uh, they are doing great work out of Melbourne, where we are from, out in the southeastern suburbs, and uh, doing their best to be a, a helpful community uh, organisation and doing good sustainability work and all of the rest. So their social media deets are in the show notes and we'd encourage you to go and check them out and see what they're up to. We would. So it's pretty straightforward, Brendan. As I mentioned on the weekly show, we streamlined the process. We will simply send you the voucher. We don't need to worry about uh, getting your contact details or any of that. We've got them because you're a patron, which is very helpful. As we also mentioned on the weekly show, we're doing this offer, this giveaway on both the weekly and storytime programs. So if you're one of our nerd pledges in the list, 
you've got a mm-hmm. pretty decent chance of, of winning some beer or winning a gift of some beer uh, from Brick yep. Lane, who, as you say, Jeff, are doing great work, a big employer in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, they're also in draft form, if you like, at the Queen Victoria Market, in Dandenong South as well, where they make the good stuff. We, yeah, we're thrilled to be in association with them here at the final word and yeah check them out on their social media feeds and you know if you're enjoying if you're down at the bottle shop on the weekend this weekend and you buy a slab of brick lane yourself and you've cracked one open just enjoying what's going on take a photo and uh, send it to them uh, on their socials and, and tell them that we sent you all those details are in the show notes yes very very good right now cam again this is the other 450 and i uh, did not notice the clue there is a clue, um, which is that it's related to his previous pledge, which was about Dennis Lilly and World Series cricket. This is not about Dennis Lilly and World Series cricket. It's okay. about something else. But it's about something that I thought I thought Adam will be excited when I bring this up, you know, because um, sometimes sometimes it's nice to surprise your partner, you know. Uh, that's, that's all I'm saying. Now, 450, 450. Is 450 ring a bell uh, just, just off the top? Is there anything... Anything exciting that you've seen involving 450? Oh God, I hate it when you do this. Uh, no, I know that's fine. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm just uh, my, my, because I've been in the weeds on 450. Mm. I probably have seen a few 450s this week, but none of them are immediately mm. coming to mind. But I'm looking forward to this. 450 is a score that a team made in a very notable match that you and I were at. 450. Is oh, hang on. 450 is what Pakistan made at Brisbane in 2016. Yes. yes. Exactly. Yes. 2016, batting last in the test, chasing 490, and so nearly getting to what would have been, by a massive margin, the biggest chase successfully in test cricket. Uh, one of these crazy games, Australia... Made 429 first up, wrestled Pakistan for 142 and then piled on another 200 before declaring, leaving them 490 to win. That was at the end of the third day, I think. And so Pakistan in that fourth innings lost a couple. They had Azhar Ali and and Yunus Khan make 50s and got them into the fourth day and then more wickets fell. And by the end of that day, it was Asad Shafiq batting with the tail. And they were, what, six six for 220 chasing... 490. And from that point onwards, Asad Shafiq, the number six, puts on 92 with Muhammad Amir, puts on another 60-odd with Wahab Riaz, who gets out just before the end of the night session. And then the next day puts on another 80-something with uh, Yassir Shah. All three of those tail-enders made their highest scores in test cricket in that innings. Muhammad Ami made 48, Wahab made 30, Yassir Shah 33. And it was right at, towards the end. They were nine for 449 when Asad Shafiq got a brilliant ball from Mitchell Stark. He just got one to bounce, just found something, found the shoulder of the bat and had him caught in the gully. And then Yassir was run out a run later, batting with the final partnership. So they ended up all out 450, 40 runs short of what would have been a truly uh, historic and ridiculous performance and would have um, broken that streak of Australia being unbeaten at the Gabba a few years earlier than it eventually happened. I have a lot of fond memories of those few days because it was a total non-event to that point, the Test match. I mean, yes, yeah, Steve Smith made 100, likewise Peter Hanscom, his first century. I mean, Nathan Lyon went the bash with Jackson Bird, which was fun. I think he made 40-odd. Lyon hit a couple of sixes mm. and then Australia went to work with the ball um, under lights. Probably my most striking memory of the first couple of nights or first couple of days 
in the night session were the people beneath our press box, Jeff, when the shoey was a thing, when Daniel Ricardo started the shoey and oh, yeah. people beneath us were, instead of just sculling beers when returning to their seats, they, they were all pouring them into their shoes and sculling them as a, as a, mm. as a sign of affection, which um, I never quite understood, but I do love Daniel Ricardo, right. so, you know, do what you need to do. But the game, it was all over on that third night. I think Pakistan might have lost two or three second innings wickets before the close of play on the third evening. They were absolutely stuffed. And with rain in the air on the Sunday, Jeff, my recollection mm-hmm. is we were showing up on that Sunday to go through the motions. And if they didn't get mm-hmm. the result due to rain, well, we'd come back and do it all again on day five. Australia had all the time in the world. And then it just, you know, they got back on. And that final session, it was wonderful for a number of reasons, not least the fact that Australia took the extra half an hour to finish off Pakistan because they mm. were seven down. And like, yeah, and Gunnar Gould was umpiring and, you know, Gunnar loves to finish things early when possible. He's like, yeah, 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 we'll give them the extra half an hour at mm-hmm. like 10.30 at night or something like that uh, on an extended day where there'd been rain about. So it was very late finish. I was OBOing it for The Guardian and it was such an exciting time when Wahab Riaz was taking the long handle Asad Shafiq mm. making it to three figures just before the close of play. Massive emotional response yeah. from a player that you've been really invested in, Jeff, over a long stretch of time. And we were both so pumped. I remember going to the pub that night, knowing that even though we were returning for a fifth day that you know, mm. was probably going to go one way, I think from memory, Pakistan returned needing about 100-odd on the final day. But we just believe, we had a little bit yeah, of belief. And, and the rest. I think they needed 130 or 140. Right. They, no, I reckon it was they about... Put on, they put on 80. Did um, they? Okay. They fell, they fell 40 short. Okay, so well, 100, about 120. But there was enough there to just to kind of believe in something special. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and as it turned out, a few years later, Yasir Shah did make a test entry in Australia, so it wasn't mm. like he was unable to do it. And my last memory was that you and I, Jeff, when we realised that it was getting close, we sprinted down around the, the concourse area at the Gabba and sat with the Pakistan fans and we were just arriving as Yasir Shah got out and we were kind of there for the last rites and mm. watching Yasir walk off the field, I took a nice photo of him, but all the Pakistan supporters around us who were sobbing with pride. They weren't sobbing because Pakistan mm. had lost. They were so proud of what their team had achieved towards the back end of that test and reaching 450 in the second innings. And yeah, they mm. fell 40 short, but it was a, a huge effort. And it's a real shame that they got turned over at Melbourne and Sydney too, because you know it felt like that might have been you know, a bit of a marker for what was at the time the number one ranked test team in the world. So yeah, special generation there um, under... Uh, Misbah Al-Haq and, uh, of course, Yunus Khan and some yeah some real uh, wonderful players to cover over the years and, and that's one of the best nights we had with them. And that uh, series is the one where he completed the set, where he made his ton in Australia to mean that he'd, he'd made one in every country he'd played in that's right, against yes. every opponent he'd played against. That's Yunus, of course. Yeah, that's Yunus, yes. Yes, yes. Well, let's take the mid-innings breather and then we'll be back for a revisit section that is... Uh, there's a fair bit there. There's a fair bit there. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Jeff, we mentioned off the top the Lord's Taverners and the work that Declan Muller uh, was doing with them. That might have inspired you. And if it did, if you want to take on something uh, to help uh, support this extraordinary charity... This is a really good time to do it. Yes, it, it, it's complicated in the UK right now. We've already detailed that. But it doesn't preclude you from doing events, especially outdoor events, which there are so many of. They're all listed on the Lord's Taverners website. We've got them in the show notes at the moment. So if hearing what Declan's been up to uh, and hearing what we've been talking about for the last 12 months or so about the, the great work the Lord's Tavs do on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis with some of the most vulnerable members of our community, this might be the right time. If you want to 
have an idea of what they're doing. There's a lot of detail on the website, but basically the Lord's Taverners are trying to help out, particularly kids and, and young people who are living with disability or in disadvantaged situations where they need community. They need uh, opportunities to socialise, uh, particularly people living with disability are much more likely to be isolated, to report having feelings of isolation and loneliness and to, to need that kind of social support. And the Lord's Tavern has used cricket in a lot of the work that they do as a way to try to bring people together. And they use modified versions of cricket that people with different kinds of disability can play or can be involved in. And they also support the development of uh, cricket overseas as a means to, to help kids living in disadvantage like they have done in supporting the projects in Brazil. So there's a bunch of work they do around the world as well as in the UK and if you go to lordstaverners.org you can find out all about what they do and you can also find out what you can do to help. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Well, this is The Final Word Storytime. The revisit section. Off the top, I will note that a not that Tim Minchin, Danish Babar and Rory Seymour. I'm still working on your revisits. We have been involved in games of cat and mouse, but the cat will triumph. Let me tell you, my claws will find you eventually. But we'll come back to your numbers next week because we've got a lot to get through. The first of which is the revisit from WG Rumble Pants, uh, £2.88. We were talking about uh, India in Sydney this year, earlier this year, because the guests from WG mentioned an Indian summer. WG says, uh, enjoyed the answer, but afraid you're some way off as you misinterpreted the Indian summer. It's an old phrase that sort of means an, an unexpected late re-flourishing after you thought the period of flourishing was over. That's the sort of context that that, that, that originally means. And WG says it actually has nothing to do with Indian cricket, you need to look back to 1895 to find the correct answer. Well, that can only mean one thing, Adam. Yes, it could. Once it's almost, I'm glad he gave us that extra clue because it got me straight into the story. But I think I already knew what he was talking about when he said you're misunderstanding what I mean by Indian summer because, of course, there was a very famous Indian summer there in 1895. Before coming to that, WG Rumblepants, we, we've talked in the past about his mural where across mm-hmm. this blank canvas, he's painting from the bottom up, row up, row, 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 all the way to the very top of people who are involved and influential in cricket. And he's bestowed upon us the staggering honour this week, Jeff, of including us in the latest row that he's been painting. So um, <laughs> there's you, me, Felix, who we mentioned already today, Greg mm-hmm. James, uh, Matchin Tendulkar, Ellie Oldroyd and James Anderson. We kind of represent the podcast section of the right. mural, which is very flattering. And I also found it quite hilarious, by the way, that, that Jimmy didn't feature in the previous, like, 13 rows of people who've been included. He's, he's not there for having... <laughs> the guy with a thousand wickets. Yeah, exactly. Had to do a podcast <laughs> to get a gig. <laughs> so it's, it looks fantastic. I think uh, WG has shared that on the Patreon page. And yeah. I think... He's also shared the updated bit on Twitter. If he hasn't, we'll do so. Why wouldn't we? It looks beautiful. So uh, yeah. thank you for doing that. And as I say, that's that's a really lovely touch, it's sort of acknowledging that a lot of people make wonderful cricket podcasts around the world, but that, that we kind of feel that part of the mural is a, is a lovely thing. Yeah. Well, his plan is to use, to, to make prints of the mural um, and have Lord's Tavs it sell is. them to raise money to, to take that full circle to where we were. I'll also note that in positioning-wise on the mural, uh, I'm just behind Richie Benno. 
I just thought I'd note that. Just, <laughs> just, just, just goes Benno Lemon. I think you've got Fred Truman. I have. I, I, I've got Fred Truman directly in front of me. I'm not sure what that says mm-hmm. exactly, but another, I suppose, another yeah. another person that's very well known uh, both for his playing work and his broadcasting, like Benno. So yeah, it's really cool. Uh, and look, I suppose you could even say the Indian summer links through to Lord's Tabs as well, mm-hmm. because presumably later in the summer there'll be more people vaccinated, and that might be when you want to undertake your individual solo mission, or you might want to mm-hmm. do it with some friends and raise some money for the tabs the way that WG Rumble Pants has been doing. Right, so to his number, 288, the Indian Summer. Of course, it's the other WG, the Doctor, WG Grace. Uh, his 1895 mm-hmm. season, which is well known as the Indian Summer, when he was age 47, he turned 48 through the course thereof. In the May, I mean, it's the most well-known month, I suppose, in first-class cricket. He became the first player to strike 1,000 runs in a month, and in doing so, he became the first player to complete 100 first-class centuries. He did so for his mighty Gloucestershire against their old rival, Somerset, at Bristol. He went on to make 288 in that innings, which, of course, is what WG's referring to. It was part of this crazy run in that month, which included another 103, a 288, a 257, a 169 and a 73 not out, which meant that between the 9th of May and the 30th of May that year, he struck 1,016 runs. And he finished the season with 2,346 runs at 51, nine centuries, and, and remarkable considering at that stage of his career, he had passed his best my, objectively. My concern, at Adam, with that, uh, 9th to the 30th of May, 10, 16 runs. What did he do up until the 9th of May? Nothing. <laughs> Bludged. Well, sat well, they around. Didn't start the season, you see. This is, this is, when, this is uh. when, you know, cricket started in May, not, not April as it mm. does these days. There was a football season and there was a cricket season, which I suppose is, is an affliction that we know all about in Australia as well with the two crowding each other out these days. So yep. in recognition of the Indian summer, Wisden made him the sole cricketer of the year in 1896. Right. So the first of three times where the good book's given it just to one player. So 1896 was Grace, 1921 was Plum Warner, and 1926 was Jack Hobbs after, or well, must have been when Jack Hobbs uh, had finished his international career. Hmm. Uh, John Wisden himself in the 50th edition of the book was made the one player of the year despite not being, you know, having played in 1912 or anything remotely like the others, but uh, recognition mm-hmm. of him, him starting the book 50 years earlier. Just on the 288, Jeff, to finish off on WG's number, it was a cold day and he was not out overnight, so the crowds piled in despite how freezing it was. His batting partner, C.L. Townsend, said it's the first time he ever saw Grace nervous, knowing that he was nearing this you know, staggering milestone of 100 hundreds and also um, nearing uh, 1,000 runs uh, in the month. Uh, Sammy Woods, who we've talked about before, Jeff, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, gave Grace kindly a full toss on his pads on 99, which he worked away for four. When he got to 200 later in the innings, he got brought out a tray, a magnum of champagne and a tray of glasses. And they stopped the game while all the players, all the fielders and, and the two batters and the umpires stopped to enjoy a drink uh, to recognise the fact that he'd, he'd made this double ton after completing his 100th century. <laughs> he went on it's to have so a... so ridiculous. Oh, it continues. Like, it gets better. It gets when, better. <laughs> when, when people argue about whether, whether cricket was as hard, you know, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Like, Out mm. comes the magnum of champagne. Yeah. After he finished the match, he had a private dinner party for 18 people and made up 18 plates, which documented each of the 100 centuries and then that became a bit of a How tradition 18 document 100 well 18 How plates 100? so i'm just saying on the plate all 100 centuries yeah. are marked on the plate so you know who it was against where it was and and so on and what score he made 
made. But 18 people, right. were, you know, so only 18 of the plates were made, so they became a bit okay. of a, a collector's item. But going forward, when other players achieved the feat, they did the same. Colin Cowdery, we talked about Cowdery's 100th century a, a couple of months ago. He did it, and then uh, Edrich did it, and as did Boycott. And the reason I mentioned Boycott is that that is the plate that Andrew Sampson stitched him up with a couple of years ago, spectacularly on Test Match Special, saying that the commemorative plates that Boycott had made up uh, when he reached his 100th hundred, which famously was at his home ground at Leeds in 1977 against Australia, that it was wrong because the... um, the 100 that they counted uh, against South Africa in the world, uh, rest of the world games of 1970, they put out a fraudulent press release that Jonathan Agnew read out expertly, saying that, uh, that that no longer counted as a first-class century. It had been rebadged by the ICC and it no longer w- was part of it, so therefore his 100-100 wasn't at Headingley against uh, Australia in an Ashes test in, in 77, and boycott went fucking ballistic on air and said some pretty nasty things on the way through too unsurprisingly so but anyway so there's a bit of a history with these plates and it goes back to the first who did it wg grace in the may of 1895 his indian summer very good adam very good thank you to the wg's one and two dominic de souza correa well 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 this one this one was interesting because the number from dominic was 512 right 512 the the clue, the original clue was that this was a stunning moment in the history of New Zealand and Australia ODI contests. Moment might be a key word. The man and his career at the centre of the event could be considered as an embodiment of the New Zealand team during the aughts. Now, this, this goes back a few weeks and I, I had a go at it and I didn't get there and I have been in detail on this. Like I have looked at the scorecard of every one-day international that Australia and New Zealand have played over the course of about 20 years. Sometimes we complain about Australia not playing New Zealand enough. Frankly, at this point, I'm glad they didn't play them very much because it, it was quite an involved task. And I didn't know where we were getting to until we did another number on the weekly show a few days ago, which was $1.01 from Jack Jorgensen, which was about, by his clue, a, uh, a dramatic one-day match when there were various things that linked back to it where, when something happened in the second innings by a player who didn't have a good first half of the mm-hmm. game. And Adam tracked down this one-dayer where Jacob Oram went for 50 runs off five overs bowling and then when New Zealand were five for bugger all and completely stuffed chasing 350, he just tonked 100 off se- 101 off 70-odd balls to keep them in the chase and they lost by eight runs. And I thought to myself as Adam went through that game, that seems like it fits with a fair bit of what Dominic D'Souza Correa is saying because who embodies New Zealand during the aughts better than Jacob Oram? You know, medium pacer, hits it hard, doesn't quite do either discipline, fully to the required standard, but very useful. And there are so many New Zealand players like that during that time that sort of Scott Styrus... Uh, Andre Adams, Nathan Astle, Craig McMillan sort of era of of those useful all-rounders who did a bit of this and a bit of that. Uh, Kyle Mills would be another one. But I was like, how does this link to 5.12? 5.12, like does this link to 5.12? I've been looking at John Bracewell who made 512 runs in one-day cricket that no, that was that had nothing to do with it. He was too early. Finn Allen scored 512 runs in the last domestic T20 season, um, which is a lot, but that's far too recent. But when it linked back to this game that Adam was looking at, finally, after looking through a lot of things, I realised something. That was the 512th 
One Day International played by New Zealand. Oh. That game at the Wacker in whatever year it was when Jacob Oram went to town. That was ODI 512 for New Zealand. Not ODI 512 overall. Not like the number where they have the hash and they say this is Test Match 2224. It was New Zealand's 512th One Day International match. How did and you, it's no wonder that it took me that long to figure it out. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you find that out? I mean, I, I would know how to get every one day but broken down by country that that's uh that's rarities and oddity stuff simply by looking through every game that new zealand had played and noticing the game that you had mentioned and noticing that it was near the top of a list of 50 they they come through in batches oh, i see i see and i was like i'm on page 11 that means <laughs> the previous 10 pages have got me to 500 and that is 512 dominic if Jeff's not right, we sometimes say this, if Jeff's not right, you're obliged to lie to him, as Bon Jovi said. <laughs> lie to me. Lie to me beautifully, Dominic. Lie yeah, to me beautifully. Lie to him beautifully. Well, that's superb. 512. On, on two, who would have thought? Who would have thought? On two occasions in the same week, we've been drawn to Jacob Orham at the Wacker in mm. 2007. Let's hope it happens again sometime soon. If we um, spelled his name in the Latin way, Jacob Orham would mean Jacob Gold. So perhaps <laughs> that's what we've dug up. Uh, we're going to stay in the 500s with our next revisit. 596 for Pete. Uh, we went through, I went through, Port Adelaide Women's Day in the Dirt uh, back in, I think it was 2016, against Northern Districts uh, when Norths made 596 in a 50-over game, which was the record in Australian club cricket, I think we worked out, something like that. Pete says he enjoyed hearing his pledge and his guilt for not providing a clue was washed away with Adam's guess. Well, that's very nice of you. But it wasn't correct. As an Aussie born and raised in Adelaide, I loved the story, especially Port being on the receiving end, <laughs> but when I pledged back in March, it seemed extra nerdy to be the 596th patron with £5.96. My clue, a it marathon... It really is, Pete. <laughs> it is, it is, and I like it. My clue, a marathon 21st century effort in a non-Big 3 fixture played at a non-traditional test venue. Hmm, there's a bit there. Yeah. Okay. Well, so non-Big 3, so it's not Graham Wood batting 596 minutes at Trent Bridge in the draw of 1985. No one's ever faced 596 balls in an innings. Non-traditional test venue causes me a little bit of concern because this, this doesn't quite fit, but the rest of it fits. So I'm going to go to Gaul. I'm going to go to Sri Lanka taking on the West Indies in 2001, 21st century effort. This is the crazy Brian Lara series where in three tests he makes three tons and 688 runs and they still get smashed in every game because Murali <laughs> is just taking out everyone else he has a masterpiece in the first game makes 178 uh, taking on Murali he's batting a long time with Ramnaresh Sawan at the very start of his test career who made 88 gets West Indies to 448 and then that Sri Lankan team which looking back what a team this was Jaya Surya and Adapatu opening up Sangakara and Jaya Wardner in the middle Russell Arnold, Tilakaratna, Dilshan, Samara Weir are coming in at seven. They make 590 declared. And the marathon part, by my guess, is that they batted 203 overs in that innings. It's the fourth longest innings this century by overs. But why does that link to 596? The Pete's number, the pledge number is 596 because after making 590 in the first innings, they rolled the West Indies for 144, leaving Sri Lanka to chase a target of three. They got two of those runs and then Jayasuriya hit a boundary. 
so got them to six. Thus, in the match, Sri Lanka made 596 <laughs> runs with the marathon effort of the fourth longest innings in the 21st century. Jeff, I love what you've done there uh, for Pete, uh, but I suspect we'll be revisiting that again next week. That's just my hunch. <laughs> Let us know, Pete. Send us a, send I, us look, a DM. I can't say that Gaul is not a traditional test ground. It's a very traditional test no, ground. But no, it, it, come on. But I, come on. 596. You've got results. I had a look at that one too, and I went through a bunch of 596s and had absolutely no clue where Pete was at. So it might require a bit of intervention, but we'll get there next week. Jeff, our next revisit is 770 from Miranda Jayawikrama. Now, we went through Frank Worrell's best figures in Test cricket, which was 7 for 70 in a game where they still lost by an inning. So not too dissimilar from uh, what you were explaining there with Brian Lara and Sri Lanka, but we weren't right. Yes, Aranda says that he enjoyed the discussion of Frank Worrell, having read about his exploits previously, but an affliction of mine from a few weeks ago struck him and Aranda did put in one of his numbers wrong. See, I'm not always (laughs) making it up. Sometimes it happens. Instead of putting in the runs conceded by the bowler, he says, I put in the runs that the player made in the match. Now, seven refers to the total number of wickets that the player took. 70 refers to the number of runs he made in the match. So 7 for 70 was not his match bowling analysis, but his wickets and his runs taken, having looked at the wrong table. Yeah, and this is the classic test match at Colombo in 1992 that Aranda must be steering us towards, one he remembers and one that, as Australian kids growing up, we didn't get to watch because it wasn't televised back to Oz. It was a series where we got sort of news clips and... I remember when this test match ended, actually. It was on, I think it was on a Saturday, because on the Sunday there was a big segment done on Sports World about it, and we were uh, able to see this extraordinary Australian comeback. So first test of the series, Australia all out 2-5-6 in the first innings. Then Sri Lanka pile on a 547 for eight. That's a lead of, what's that, 289. Hammered by Asanka Gurusina, Arjuna Ranatunga, Ramos Kalawatarana. They all made big centuries. Then in the third innings of the match, Australia mount a bit of a rear guard. They make 471. It's a really consistent effort. There are seven scores between 35 and 68, 58 extras as well, um, which also fell into that into that bracket. Jesus. So ultimately, Sri Lanka are set 181 on the final day, and they're cruising at 127 for two with Aravinda da Silva and Asanka Gurusina doing as they see fit. And then Craig McDermott goes bang, bang, and then... Greg Matthews goes bang, bang, and suddenly it's game on. They've lost four for 10, and it's 137 for six. And by this point, we're quite deep in, into the final session. And mm-hmm. welcome Shane Warne. So Shane Warne, who took none for 107 from 22 overs in the first innings, after, I should add, taking one for 150, none for 18, and none for 60 in his three previous test innings bowling. So his career started with one for 335 to this point. He's bowling deep on day five, probably thinking, am I going to make it as a test cricketer? And boy, does he ever. Um, he goes on to take three for none uh, from his last 13 balls, finishing with three for 11. Uh, Sri Lanka all out 164 at about quarter past five in the afternoon, nearing stumps. Australia, after conceding a, a deficit of 289 on the first innings, win by 16 runs. And that's the point when Shane Warne essentially overtakes Greg Matthews as Australia's number one spinner. And Greg Matthews is who this is about. So Mo made a, a half century in the first dig uh, and six in the second. I think it was 64 and six and took seven wickets for the match, including four for 76 the first time around. So seven wickets and 70 runs for the match for Greg Matthews, the off spinner. 
And the numbers that follow explain just the extent to which Warren did overtake Matthews, who only played three more test matches. By contrast, Warren, his next 296, so if you like, from one wicket at the start of that innings to 300, which he took against South Africa in the New Year's Test of 1998, the SCG, Warren took 296 wickets at 22.6 with 14 fifers and four 10-wicket games, which that's when his shoulder starts to go. So mm. I think a lot of people consider that from the win at Colombo through to the 300th wicket at Sydney in, in January 98. So before they go to India and he starts to struggle a little bit with that shoulder as like mm-hmm. peak Shane Warne or Shane Warne version one when he was irresistible with the flipper and all the variation and the relentless leg breaks that he would turn three feet. But yeah, it kind of all starts there, that stretch at Colombo where Greg Matthews was by his side. And the pledge is about Matthews, but yeah, really, uh, that match is uh, is symbolising the starters pistol firing in an extraordinary run for SK Warren. Well, a shout out to our former nerd pledger, Brooke Quinn, who had a pledge of $3.11 uh, way back in the day, which was related to the three for 11 that Shane Warren took in that match. And now we've got one for Greg Matthews as well. <laughs> the, Fantastic. Uh, finally recognised. Thank you, Aranda Ajaya Vikrama. Matt Keane's 375, which he was at pains to point out was not about Brian Lara. Uh, the original clue was less BC, a little JJ and more IT. And we looked at IT both of them. We looked at... 375 being a number of wickets he would have passed on his way to 383, which was where his career ended. He did also have the world record wickets for a time, but Matt says it's not a tally of wickets. It is about Botham. He says Botham in the mid-80s had a minor indiscretion with uh, the herb, which (laughs) resulted in a ban. Matt would like to know what's a couple of funky roll-ups between friends that his comeback test at the Oval, says Matt, was a sweet moment and stuck two fingers up at the selectors for their folly. The JJ stayed in the game and ensures fair play on both sides. Right. So this was not about Botham's world record itself, but about the process of getting to the world record. Uh, so not him reaching 375, but when he passed the record, it, it belonged to Dennis Lilly and was 355. And after his ban, he was two wickets away from breaking Lily's record. So uh, the stuff in the newspapers at the time saying that Botham was doing heroin and, and all kinds of stuff based on interviews with someone who knew someone who knew someone. And he said, I didn't do heroin, I just smoked weed. And then they were like, oh, we'll ban you for smoking weed. So anyway, he was dominating county cricket while England were losing in the test matches. So he got brought back in, two wickets short of the record, got Bruce Edgar out straight away. And shortly afterwards, the one that got him the record in his own right was an LBW against Jeff Crow, Jeffrey John Crow, JJ, dismissed by IT Botham, <laughs> who is now a match referee, uh, the one who stayed in the game and ensures fair play on both sides. He was in South Africa in 2018 for that fun series, Jeff Crow, doing the first two tests there. So that is the number for Matt Keane. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, and I haven't looked at this back on the car, but I'm fairly sure the Bruce Edgar dismissal is first ball. Uh, so it's a half tracker or something like that, and thus the sort of golden bollocks thing with, with Ian Botham. What's mm. that thing? I think, you know, who writes this guy's scripts might have been the piece of commentary on radio, something like that. It was the allegedly the comment. It was the comment attributed to the then captain of England, who I can't remember who that was. Uh, um, by that point, uh, hmm, yes, that's a good question, who it would have been exactly then. But then, nonetheless, yeah, the who writes his scripts, I mean, it could have been one of a number of players that captain England through that stretch. Uh, but, yeah, so that all stands to reason, and I'm glad we got that right, Matt, because that was a very tricky clue, but it, it wasn't JJ Ferris, it was uh, JJ Crow. 
JJ Crow, right. Uh, 257 for Josh with the clue of move in, now move out, hands up, now hands down. The lyrics written by Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit <laughs> in a song called Roland. We were looking at players called Roland, principally. Our German friend Tilo Fob uh, wrote in to say, as an actual purchaser of the Chocolate Starfish album released by Limp Biscuit, I was very happy to see uh, that you awarded the slab to quench Fred Durst. As you surely know, Durst is German for thirst. Thank you, Thilo. Um, always rely on you to contribute to the show. Josh says, very much enjoyed the Roland chat. Apparently, I mentioned the player he was referring to. The other thing I talked about was Trevor Chappell rolling the ball along the pitch. And so Josh says, I'll give it away by saying that my 257 could have been 263 if not for this ideas man's final play. So it's got to be underarm, doesn't it? It does. So Trevor Chappell uh, took two for 57 that day. Of course, it would have been two for 63 had uh, had that somehow been hit for a six, which of course wasn't possible uh, because he rolled it down. Yes, mm-hmm. and I mean, the, the story is well known, uh, but I'm glad that we were able to reroute to there. Just on this, by but, the way. But it, it, it really bugs me, this story, in a way, uh, looking back at it, because it's just not a story. Like, no one else had hit a six in the innings. How is Brian McKechnie batting at number 11 going to hit a six? As if he was ever going to hit a six. Uh, no, no, I, I'm not with you there. I mean, I think the very fact, no, I, I don't think I can have that. I, I think that the, yes, the probability of hitting a six on the Melbourne cricket ground with full boundaries with bats as they were then and all the rest was was limited. But yeah, I, I think Greg Chappell doesn't shy away from the fact that this had nothing to do with, uh, this was just about making, you know, they were exhausted. I interviewed mm. Greg about this a couple of years ago and he went to great lengths to explain to me who wasn't around at the time just how much cricket they'd been playing, just how cooked they were, and his own mental state was so affected by that that whatever it took to win and wrap up the series there, hmm. the idea of flying across the country for another final was not was not a goer. So, you know, he wishes he didn't do it, and Trevor Chappell wishes that he wasn't involved in it and remembered for it, but, yeah, yeah. there was that mitigating factor. I'm not saying it was good or, or bad. I'm, I'm saying that I don't understand why people are actually so mad about it in that it didn't materially affect the result. Like, you, on strike is a number 10 who had never who had never hits a six in his whole career, who made a grand total of 54 runs in one-day cricket in his whole career, and they're batting at the MCG. So it's, sort of, it, it's not like it denied a genuine opportunity. Like, it's not the right thing to do, but it also didn't actually it's not like there's a player on strike who's on 68 not out off 40 balls and and is a good chance to put it over the rope you know it's like the, the amount of <laughs> angst about it seems disproportionate to the actual offense you're on your own on this one uh, i'm going to say something we might be united in though jeff so dilo uh, thob who we referred to a moment ago an ideas man himself he was part of a conversation i was having on on, on twitter last night you may have seen that bish got his second jab yesterday he tweeted about it a pfizer jab and thus started some back and forth in the comments in the replies about who had had a superior vaccine take you know it's a bit of back and forth bit of fun AstraZeneca, moderna or Pfizer and we we decided and Thilo was part of this and we decided that we would run later in the year a game of cricket some sort of a festival day hopefully Mm -hmm. at at Hackney there at London Fields where we get three teams made up of players who've been jabbed with AstraZeneca Moderna (laughs) or Pfizer Uh, you won't have any Australians playing (laughs) 
So, uh, but Vish made the good point that we should organise this through the final words. So, yes, mm-hmm. we've got a lot on. We're busy boys. But if there is a way to get a game of cricket on, or, or, or ideally a, sort of a, a few games of cricket on, out there in front of the Lido at London Fields mm-hmm. with people enjoying a barbecue and a tin of beer, I'm kind of all for that. Uh, so, um, yes, I thought this would be the appropriate place to sort of just float mm-hmm. that for the first time and maybe we okay. can get a bunch of vaccinated people out to play cricket sometime later in the year. It's got to be around Robin, surely, because the, yeah. you know, the, all the vaccines have to play each other. Yeah. So it's got to be yeah, so. you know, a I sort of finals so. day. I think, um, yeah, finals, finals, I mean, finals day style would work, wouldn't it? Everyone plays everyone mm. and then we can go to the pub. <laughs> I'm pretty relaxed about that. Or we can sit in the park. That's beautiful there at London Fields, especially when, when the sun's out and people are crowded around the cricket ground. So watch this space. Righto. Uh, Brian Stratford up next, the 273. Right. So we said lots of things for 273. I'm not going to go through all of them because it was one of those answers, Jeff, where you gave about 12 things. And the second clue that we needed to look at was Brian saying that his number was uh, that of an international career total for a player. It related to an article that he'd been reading recently and borrowing from a past pledger, he's chosen to pay in sterling for convenience. There were two other currencies it could have been. So that, that was clue one. And now clue mm-hmm. two is that what you ran through a number of 273s. None of them quite hit the mark uh, for Brian, despite the fact that he enjoyed some of your work there. Some other Mm -hmm. clues include the fact that it was mentioned in an article by Dave Townsend about this cricketer, though I've not been able to independently verify how he worked out that number. It might be worth Mm -hmm. asking Dave. And then the two currencies clue is because he was born in one country but represented another test nation. Currently Mm -hmm. coaching an associate nation, he took more wickets than Meadow and pro for that matter, but not as many as Binger. I hope that's enough to work out who it is, but I can send a photo through to show you the article afterwards. No need for the photo, Brian Stratford. I'm all over this like Meadow Lee on a slice of toast. Now, David Townsend writes about Ireland principally. Um, That's that's his beat, uh, particularly Irish cricket. Trent Johnston is a player who was born in one test country, Australia, and played for another, Ireland. Uh, the two currencies, other than sterling, that Brian refers to could have been a Euros and Australian dollars. Trent is currently coaching Hong Kong, an associate nation, and previously coached New South Wales, having been born in New South Wales. More wickets than Meadow. Meadow was the nickname of Shane Lee. Meadow Lee. Meadow Lee being a kind of margarine that you can buy in Australia. I don't know if you still can, but you used to be able to. Maybe you still can. Others will know. Uh, if you're not familiar with the product, that's what it is. It's a funny nickname because his last name is Lee, and thus the nickname is Meadow. That's quite <laughs> clever for Australia. <laughs> so we must be talking about ODIs because Shane Lee took 48 wickets in one-day internationals. Trent Johnston took 66, which is more than Meadow, but not as many as Binger, a.k.a. Brett Lee, who took 380. Got a bit of an advantage there. They are mentioned because Shane and Brett Lee grew up on the New South Wales coast just south of Sydney. And Trent Johnston, as it happens, was born and raised in Wollongong, a city on the coast of New South Wales, just south of Sydney. Taking more wickets than Pro, a Pro was the nickname of Phil Jakes, who never bowled in his six one-day internationals, but he was another player born in the Gong. So how does that link back to 273? That's the number of wickets that David Townsend, in an article he wrote in about 2011, I think, says that Trent Johnston took for Ireland. And the reason that Brian says he doesn't know how this number was calculated is because it's not the immediately apparent number, which is um, combining somebody's one-day international and T20 international and 
test wickets because Trent Johnston didn't play tests. But he played a lot of games that were not given that status, but they were still for Ireland. They were first-class games or List A games or T20 games rather than T20 international games. So you put those together, 111 List A wickets, 97 first-class wickets and 47 T20 wickets. We're trying to get to 273. That gets us to 255. We're 22 short. But Ireland did play a bunch of miscellaneous games against touring teams and warm-ups for World Cups and that kind of thing. At which count Trent Johnston would have needed to take 22 wickets in those games to get to the 273. My count, David Townsend, has him taking 24, not 22. So unless there's a game in there that you've counted or I've counted that you haven't. But as far as I can tell, games where he played against uh, four islands, specifically against an international team... That's 24 more wickets, which would take us to 275. Plus there are 11 really miscellaneous uh, wickets against teams like Loughborough or the Singalese Sports Club, etc. But they're still taken for a team called Ireland. But at any rate, I'm going to call this close enough. The wickets that Trent Johnston took for Ireland, 273, Brian Stratford. Okay, this is good. I just wanted to clarify one point, Jeff. When you say that he took uh, 100 and 11 list day wickets or 90 let's go go first class 97 first class wickets for Ireland is that for dis- Ireland yeah. yeah is that discounting the first class wickets he took elsewhere yes okay fine because I was going to note that he did of course you know play a little bit for New South Wales and his career ended in really sad circumstances he was um he was caught up in an incident on the team bus where the driver, a teammate of his, on the bus was was messing about, and um, and uh, so it's been relayed to me. You know the, the way the bus was, whether whether he knew he was on the bus or not is unclear. But um, he fell off the back of it, broke his arm, uh, and that was it. That was after a day's play. And next year, so he's out of the game effectively. And then the next year, he's not on the contract list. So, but th- that's at the age of twenty five or something like that. And you know, he picked up Mike Hussey and Simon Kadich in that game, which turned out to be his last game for New South Wales. And at that point, he's like, mm-hmm. well, he's stuffed, isn't he? And then he kind of realises what might be possible with Ireland and one thing leads to another. And he has his wonderful second act. But yeah, let's not discount what a good cricketer he was for New South Wales, if not for that that stupid incident, which evidently Mark Taylor went absolutely wild uh, when this happened, uh, when he fell off the back of this bus, um, because it was no fault of his own. But anyway, that's, I suppose, all in the past. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Ireland, the Ireland team at the time could be asked, to, you know, where did you find this good player? Oh, fell off the back of a truck. Yes, he just about did, just yeah. about did. Great one. Well, Brian Stratford, let us know how 273 tallies with DT's calculations. Looking forward to seeing that during the week. Jeff, we've got one more confirmation. It's from Lachlan Smith. He sent through uh, 329 to begin with. Uh, we mentioned Mike Hussey a moment ago. My answer was it was the first of his triple-ton trilogy, if you like, back in 2001, but I wasn't right. Love Mike Hussey, says Lachlan, one of my favourite all-time cricketers. I wasn't aware of how many runs he made for North Ants. But my number relates to another Australian cricketer from my childhood. This achievement cemented his place as my favourite all-time, even if I had to lie awake at night to hear it all take place. Okay, lie awake at night indicates that it's an Australian tour to England. Having something good to listen to on one of those tours indicates that it's 1989+. plus. 1989 uh, player from the West, it's got to be Jeff Marsh, who put on a partnership of 329 with Mark Taylor at Trent Bridge. He did. He did. We were talking about tubs, weren't we? There's that great photo of uh, Mark Taylor and Jeff Marsh leaving the ground at Trent Bridge, and it sits above the bar at Jeff Marsh's house. Remember Mitch Marsh talking about this when uh, Mm. he completed his first test ton at Perth against England back in 2017. Mitch Marsh, who, by the way, 
I gather, put in a, a sterling effort for Australia overnight, Jeff, with bat and ball, which I'm oh, thrilled to so hear. So good. Amazing. I mean, he might be the... It might very well be the case that Mitch Marsh is, I mean, I'll probably get bagged for saying this, but he might be the answer to Australia's T20 mm. problems at the moment. If a, a, a Mitch Marsh who can bowl useful middle overs at decent pace, lots of variety, and twat it, you've mm. got to pick him. Got to go to India. Got to go to India. Well, he's he's been the only good batting prospect. He's been the only good batting performer in Australia's entire tour, really. I mean, Finch has had three bad games and then made a 50 and, and that was useful. And, you know, Matthew Wade's made a couple of pretty 30s and 20s, but, yeah, Mitch Marsh has made runs three times out of four and he's been the, the centre of it. So he's going to India, I'm sure. And as for his old man, he made 347 runs uh, during those Ashes Test matches of 1989, including uh, the 138 at Trent Bridge, which was one of, I think... Four test hundreds that he made Something like that uh, He played 50 test matches He was Alan Border's vice captain And a really important part of that rise Of course the century he made In, in the World Cup semi-final against India uh, In 1987 uh, One of the most important uh, In terms of uh, solidifying where they were as a team Growing under Alan Border And yes went on to of course coach Australia To victory at the 1999 World Cup and Took on the Zimbabwe job after that uh, he's been a selector at one point. He's been the Sri Lankan coach and, yes, still the, the father of one Australian cricketer. And who knows, Jeff, based on our conversation earlier, maybe uh, he'll his, his elder son, uh, Sean, will, will play again. We dare to dream on the final word. Bring him back. Bring him back. Bring him back to me, as Maloko once sung. Confirmations. One we got right. What did we get right, Adam? <laughs> uh, the first of those is Alan Simpson. So 199. Jeff, uh, you were right that Percy Jeeves took 199 first-class wickets for Warwickshire. And then there was the Woodhouse uh, conversation that we subsequently had uh, around Murray Hedgecock, who, who wrote the, the collection about Woodhouse and his cricket writing. Uh, Murray, of course, who, who passed away a couple of months ago. Alan went on to say, glad the extra clues got Jeff over the line on 199. Having just had my birthday, I asked the kids to get me married Hedgecock's Woodhouse at the wicket for Christmas. I'm amazed that has not gone across my radar before now, but it still will be a surprise in December because by then I would have forgotten that I asked for it. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Alan. Uh, 7.27 for ED or ED, maybe. I still haven't worked out how I'm supposed to do that. Uh, my number was indeed July 27th. Yes. Says ED. Very good timing. You got it um, with the intro, not with the wonderful Ashes 1948 <laughs> story. The West Indies test of 95 is the one, not for the sunshine off the greenhouse specifically, but because I was amused by how many ways play was stopped for the test. My favourite was Michael Atherton claiming that umpire Dickie Bird lost his marbles. Uh, I assume that's he means the ones that they used to count the number of deliveries. I suspect so. I, I, I don't expect that Atherton claims that... Dickie Bird's, you know, sort of decision-making faculties had, had, um, had, had diminished to the point where he shouldn't be on the field umpiring. So, yes, I'm sure it was the, the, the mechanism he used to count balls. Yeah, so uh, ED was not uh, necessarily looking for that, but look, just looking for an interesting and excellent story and says that you delivered in spades, Adam. Well, thank you, Ed or ED. I appreciate that. We like to round off the show with some correspondence. Uh, and we've got a nice note here from Anthony Knoll. Just from a couple of months ago, actually. It slipped me by originally, but I picked it up during the week and thought it was worth reading back. Anthony says he grew up in the town where Ellie Oldroyd's father was a pastor, priest, a minister. And his father is still a member of that church community. So Anthony forwarded the episode where we talked to Ellie Oldroyd around to the church community uh, for a listen and to his dad. And he told him later that he shared it around to several people who know Ellie uh, and her father. 
I have the sense that they are pretty proud of her, uh, and understandably so. And speaking of Ellie's father, he would have turned 90, her late father, he would have turned 90 on the day that uh, Winnie was born uh, last year on the uh, on the 14th of February. So that's mm. that nice connection back to me as well. So, yes, thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that, and I'll pass it on to Ellie. <laughs> there, there, are, there are certain episodes of The Final Word where I'd be a bit worried if someone said, I'm forwarding this to my church community. Um, <laughs> but I think that one was probably fairly safe in the long run. So... <laughs> So thank you for the correspondence. That brings us to the end of the final word, story time. Thank you especially and first of all and most of all to everybody who sends in the numbers, the people on Patreon. Uh, We get to make this show twice a week. We get to do the weekly show on the Wednesdays or Wednesday-ish, Wednesday adjacent uh, where we look at the news of the week and we get to do this show where we get to uh, have a fun stretch and wander through the, the meadows of cricket history past and I don't suppose you can have history present and history future, but it's it's a special thing and the fact that everybody keeps sending through numbers, uh, shifting their numbers, waiting patiently for their turns to come around, uh, it, it's, it makes us very happy that all of this happens. Yeah, it makes us happy and it makes it possible to do what we're about to embark upon during the India-England test matches, which is recording, I think, what, somewhere between 25 and 30 episodes of the show in the space of six weeks. Like That's pretty hard going and makes all the difference that so many of you out there are contributing to what we're doing uh, week to week. So if you want to be part of the fun, patreon.com forward slash the final word. As we mentioned earlier in the program, if you sign up now or if you re-pledge now and change your number, one, you'll be able to contribute to us making the show and making story time as well and having new numbers to discuss and new stories to tell. But two, you are a decent chance of winning a, a, a crate of beer or at least being able to on gift a crate of beer from the Brick Lane Brewing community. So we thank them for that and for being our new principal sponsor here on The Final Word. Thanks also to the Lord's Taverners for the fine work that they're doing. Uh, Woodstock Cricket as well. You can pick up 20% off Woodstock Cricket kit. All that stuff's in the show notes. Uh, We're on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Lots of other shows on their label as well. Edited each show by Dave Collins, uh, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The other Collins, no relation. Uh, Like all of the Morkles, not all of the Collins is related. That brings us to the end of another show. Thanks for listening. See you on Wednesday. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it, write it out and find it.